back to another amazing episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is episode number eight, and today's episode is so very special. Um, but before we get here, I want to thank all of you all for downloading, all of you all for subscribing, sharing with friends. Special thanks to all my guests from Deshaun Watson and Alan Kavana, uh, Tiffany Cross. I want to thank Vince and Antoine. I want to thank Jason Johnson, Aaron um, Haynes uh, from the Washington Post 19th. Um, I want to thank everybody, Sonny Hostin, for uh, being special guest on the Bukhari Sellers podcast. And today, like I said, is a very special day at the Ringer and Spotify because we have uh, none other than the former first lady of the great state of Arkansas, the former first lady of the United States of America, uh, former secretary of state, and the first woman to win the nomination of a major party for president of the United States. 65 million votes, 3 million more than Donald Trump. Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, who um, I think many of us, all of us would say should be uh, the president of the United States. Um, Before I I get into this Hillary Clinton interview, I I do want to give you all um, a sense of hope. Uh, This is probably the best political ad that I've seen and heard during this cycle. Uh, It's by my good friend, Jamie Harrison, who's running for United States Senate uh, in the great state of South Carolina. He's running against Lindsey Graham, and this is from Lindsey Graham Must Go. In South Carolina, our motto is, while I breathe, I hope. I'm going to tell my story of hope. There was one night I was in the United States Capitol. It was late. It was about midnight. So late that the custodial staff has started to come to clean up. So I'm sitting there at my computer doing my work with Jim Clyburn. And there was this middle-aged African-American woman. And she came in and she said, you know, are you from South Carolina? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, are you from Orangeburg? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm from Orangeburg. Then she goes over to my pictures on the wall. She says, is that your mother? And I said, yes, ma'am. Is your mother's name Patricia Harrison? Yes, ma'am. And she started to shake and she put her hand up to her mouth and she said, oh my God, I know your mother. I went to high school with your mother. I remember when your mom dropped out of school to have you. And tears start flowing from her face and tears were flowing from mine and she hugged me. She said, I would have never thought that Patricia Harrison's son would be right here. You give me hope. My life is emblematic that the American dream works. See, this ad is what Democrats have to do more of. It's not about telling us who your opponent was, but giving people a reason to come out and vote. And on this election cycle, during this period, I think it's safe to say that when listening to that ad, you understand that the reason we must vote for Jamie Harrison is because Jamie Harrison uh, is hope. He's hope personified. So make sure you go and check those sites out. Check out Lindsey Graham Must Go. Check out Jamie Harrison's site. Uh, Donate, donate time, donate treasure. Do whatever you can so we can get rid of uh, Lindsey Graham in the the words of of how we do in South Carolina. Um, uh, Bless his heart. Uh, That goes to you, Lindsey. Um, and, you know, again, welcome to another episode of this amazing podcast. I, I like I do most uh, introductions, want to start with a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I'm a parent uh, with a teenage daughter. 
and I'm just as concerned as many of you are about the fall and reopening schools. Her school just said that they were going to be reopening five days a week. In case you missed it, the new fault line in Republican politics is forcing schools to open even as coronavirus cases spike across the country, especially in states run by Southern Republican governors. Missouri's Governor Mike Parsons basically said, fuck them kids. That's his new uh, slogan. My governor, Henry McMaster in South Carolina, was a bit more reasonable than Governor Parsons, but instead of putting as many dollars as possible into safety precautions for our teachers and providing rural schools with the resources to support virtual education, listen to what he did. He diverted $32 million in federal funds for grants for private school tuition. In Florida, as we know, Governor DeSantis is just horrible. He's forcing schools to open for five days a week for in-person instruction. As teachers prepare their wills around the country in places where they're being forced to choose between their health and the jobs they love, while still being woefully underpaid, mayors across the country who were trying to fight the good fight, mayors like my mayor, Steve Benjamin, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, are having to fight their own governors who won't even mandate wearing masks while forcing children to go to school right as coronavirus cases spike. So what do we do? Well, first, Mike Parsons has a competitive race with Democratic candidate Nicole Galloway. Anybody who says what he says about our children and our teachers deserves to lose. So go to NicoleGalloway.com and donate now. Henry won't be up again until 2022, but in the meantime, I encourage my listeners to support my friends at sc for ed at sc4ed.org, who will be on the front line supporting teachers that may be forced to work in the fall in South Carolina. And in Florida, I'm sending good vibes to my friends at the Florida Education Association, who is taking Governor DeSantis to court. Finally, as we always do before we get into our guest, I want to add a special message from Tobias Harris. You know, no, nothing against the T-shirts, but we want to make sure that Daniel Cameron will arrest the cops and the officers involved with Breonna Taylor's death. And, um, yeah, that's all I got to say. Thanks, T. Um, let's go that's going to be my answer for every question. Fair enough. For Daniel Cameron to step up and to do what's right. And that's the only message I got today. I appreciate everybody. Thanks. Attorney General Cameron, you have killers in your streets. Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove. Arrest them and arrest them now. Now let's get into another amazing interview with my good friend, Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. So you've been, you started your new uh, podcast. Yes, you're on it. It's the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We've, we've had Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Houston Texans. We've talked NASCAR. We've had Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson. Uh, we've had Charlemagne, our good friend Charlemagne. Oh, great, and, great. And Stefan Gilmore. And now we have you. And so uh, thank you for coming out. How's your podcast going? Well, you know, mine won't start until September. So we did, as you know, because you were one of my very first <laughs> guests, we've we've done a lot of interviews. We thought we were going to be able to start in May. And then because of, you know, COVID and everything, we are starting in September. So I can't wait. I've had some really terrific conversations with people, including you. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to 
you know, be podcasting together. Um, How does it feel to be finally yeah. be asking the questions? Don't you it's like pretty, the being? <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah, I know. To be on the uh, on the other side of the camera and the microphone. Um, how's your book doing? So thank you for that. Thank you for your help. Uh, we were on the New York Times bestsellers list for three weeks in a row. I thought we've, so. We've yeah. been, uh, they've produced over 50,000 copies. We'll be in Spain and France and Germany in January. And nobody knows this yet, but we're signing two more book deals. So we're breaking news. I have a children's book coming out next summer. Oh. And then uh, my second book will come out in 2022. So we're I'm excited so about glad. This. Well, I, you know, I, I meant it when I said I thought it was a terrific story. And you told it well, uh, a lot of passion and emotion. It, it really was extremely well done. So it's great to hear that you're going to well, be doing you. something for kids plus another book on your own. Well, listen, most people don't know the last person, the last human, one of the last human beings I've actually seen when traveling uh, was Hillary Clinton in New York uh, mm-hmm. when we were taping your podcast. And now the the coronavirus, COVID-19, has taken over in our world. My first question to you is, it's obvious that this president has failed to anticipate and respond to COVID. That's clear. You wrote about it in your book. But what should we have done when we first learned about the coronavirus in late November, early December? Boy, Bakari, I wish we could turn the clock back. Because if we'd had a competent, caring prepared White House. Uh, They wouldn't have gotten rid of the special unit that the Obama administration set up for the National Security Council to monitor uh, the rise of disease. Everybody knew that it was a matter of time, not if, but when. Uh, Unfortunately, this administration cut the budget of the Centers for Disease Control, cut out a lot of the funding that would have gone to pandemic uh, preparation and response. And you would have had a president who paid attention to his intelligence briefings, who took it seriously from the beginning. I remember when I was Secretary of State and we dealt with H1N1, you know, it was all hands on deck. Uh, The State Department was involved. White House was involved. Everybody was trying to figure out how to make sure we dealt with it internationally and then tried to, you know, obviously mitigate against it at home. And you would have had a president who understood what the national stockpile was, immediately turned to using the Defense Production Act uh, so that we could manufacture the personal protective equipment, the ventilators, whatever anybody needed. You would have had a president and a White House uh, that actually worked closely with the states, not in an antagonistic manner the way they have done, but what do you need and how do we do it? Uh, you would have had a president that modeled good behavior, including wearing a mask and recognizing that if we, even today, after all the mistakes and the indifference to the loss of life and the rate of infection, even today, if we took mask wearing seriously, social distancing seriously, we could get the virus under control in four to six weeks. And that's not just me saying it. That's people within the Trump administration, like his Surgeon General and the head of the (laughs) CDC, people that he put there. Unfortunately, you know, we had a president ill-prepared to be president and incredibly incoherent, inconsistent, and indifferent to the suffering that this virus has caused, not just health-wise, but economically. So how much has our response to COVID further undermined our standing globally and throughout the world? I mean, it's been devastating. Yeah. I mean, as a former Secretary of State, I mean, let's just 
let's just think about this. I, I am claiming Joe Biden's victory in November. I mean, we still got to work like hell to get there. I know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what type of mess is the next Secretary of State inheriting because of this pandemic that's been raging out of control with the, I, I, I say that, you know, you had a a, a party of, of family values, of Christian conservatism, whatever it may be, whatever they adorn themselves. And now it's just a party of utter incompetence. Mm. And so what does the next Secretary of State have to do to reclaim that global standing? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a huge undertaking. I think it can be done as long as we do retire him in November and get, uh, Joe Biden is our next president because uh, Vice President Biden has a long history of uh, working internationally. And the entire team, his White House team, his secretaries of state and defense and every other aspect of the government will obviously have to tend to all of the damage and problems that are left behind here at home. But it's imperative that we rebuild our standing and leadership in the world. Tell us why. Well, because if we retreat, we leave a vacuum. And who fills that vacuum? A very aggressive Vladimir Putin, who who just uh, yesterday, we learned, is uh, having his intelligence uh, professionals target our vaccine researchers. I mean, really, who could make this up? I mean, I know how dangerous he is because of what he did to me, but... Everybody should recognize that Russia is but, our I mean, adversary. And then we've got can, China can we, can we, but rising. Can, let's, let's, just, let's just do yeah. the Russia for one moment, please, because yeah. I, I, I tell people if Benghazi was actually a real conspiracy theory, if it was actually something that was concrete, you would have what we had just recently with we found out that, that the Russian government was paying Taliban agents to kill American soldiers. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look mm-hmm. back at these things, when you see the totality and the lack of leadership in the void, other than the fact that you were right about almost everything, how does that make you feel? I mean, as we go through this and we understand what the next Secretary of State has, what, what's your response to that? Well, it makes me feel, you know, incredibly worried about where the United States stands in the world and how we are being taken advantage of to have bounties put on American soldiers, to have the other misbehavior by Putin, starting with our election, going through trying to steal vaccine information, totally left uh, unremarked upon even by the president or anybody in his administration, let alone any action taken. To have China, you know, going into a deal with Iran uh, for trade and military cooperation. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could go down the list. And then not only what our adversaries and competitors are doing because we have left the field, but our friends and our allies who we should be working with on everything from getting a new vaccine to stopping the threats posed by uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea, China, to our our democracies. So the work will be cut out. And it reminds me a little bit, although it wasn't as bad back then when President Obama asked me to be Secretary of State. He said, look, I'm facing a total financial disaster, plus we have problems around the world. I can't do both at the same time. I'm going to do what I can to save the economy. you got to go out and figure out how to rebuild our relationships. <laughs> and so we can do it. People, even those who complain about the United States, don't want us to retreat and certainly don't want an inconsistent, unreliable uh, president who nobody can count on here at home or anywhere else in the world. 
Look, I, I just think, and you don't have to comment, but I think Pete Buttigieg is an amazing uh, potential Secretary of State. But that's just my personal <laughs> opinion. I know, I know, everybody's yeah. like a, you know, Pete's thirty something, but you know, millennials are changing the world. Uh, <laughs> let's switch gears real quick. Uh, putting on your mom hat, your grandma hat, and every other hat you've worn as the First Lady of Arkansas, which you did amazing work. How would we reopen schools safely? That's mm. the hot topic today. So, yeah, I, and I'm pretty sure you're not sending your yeah. grandkids to school in this madness. You well, wouldn't. No, I, I mean, n- none of us can be sure about what will happen. I've looked at what other countries have done. Some have been more successful than others. Is that what you just, you literally just pick up what other countries have done during quarantine? That's what Hillary Clinton has done. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for information. I'm trying to, you know, I have both a personal and a professional interest in it. Uh, You know, some countries have had the, I think, good planning uh, to create the space that is needed to have the testing constantly, the tracing of anybody with uh, an infection that is uh, found. We don't do any of that. I mean, you know, how are we going to keep teachers and students safe when we won't even all wear masks? I mean, how much of of this is incompetent versus just an outright disregard for our teachers and our families? I mean, I I think it's both. I I think it's both. I think it's, you know, clearly I don't trust Betsy DeVos, uh, you know, on anything. And with her and Trump trying to push to get people to go back to schools when they haven't even set a good example about how we can try to flatten the curve and and try to end the um, incredible upsurge in infections in our country. I mean, who's going to believe them? Nobody's going to believe them. And so school districts and states are once again left to their own devices and they're all trying to figure it out. And and I, you know, I just think a lot of places are ill-equipped to be able to bring students and teachers back safely. And it breaks my heart because you want kids to be in school and I want my kids to be in school. You know? I just think about the parents. I mean, you have so many parents that have to work now, but Absolutely. now they're going to have to, I mean, and, you know. How are they going to manage? I mean, Correct. and it's really going to fall very heavily on women because, you know, if, if somebody's got to stay home and take care of the kids and there's no child care and there's no school, then how's, how's the mom going to work plus, you know, take care of her children? It's really going to be a terrible burden on millions of families. Let me ask you a question about women and particularly the Democratic Party. But do you think that Donald Trump and his impact on Republican politics will permanently shift, because we've seen this, but will permanently shift college-educated white women to Democrats after he's gone? Or does somebody like Nikki Haley reverse that? I mean, we we saw that in your race. People know the stats of 53% of white women voting for Donald Trump, but mm-hmm. college-educated mm-hmm. women falling down on your side. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Nikki's dynamic and whatever. Uh, but But... How much damage does Donald Trump do to that narrative? Well, I think he's done incredible damage to the Republican Party. And I don't say that with any sense of glee. I mean, you've been in politics. Uh, it's it's good if you can have you know, two I, and let me just, competitive I, I, I parties, was, right? I was, I, I was friends with Lindsey Graham. You know, it's a different, he's a different person now. He is, he is. I I was, you know, I'm friends with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, but it just seems as if this party, even if Donald Trump is defeated, which I believe he will be on November 3rd, Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party will last another decade plus. Yeah, well, unless the Republican Party, when they finally see the last of Donald Trump, quickly change to become a rational, fact-based uh, you know, deliberative party again, no, you're, you're asking where they want to work with people to solve <laughs> problems. What a unique idea. Well, I mean, th- but 
Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland. I mean, th- I, I'm a think about this. Think about the judiciary for a second, right? What they did mm-hmm. to Merrick Garland. We know RBG now has cancer, and you know, I I'm pray praying. every night. I am praying. I am praying, Bakari. <laughs> I pray every night that like we bubble wrap Stevie Wonder and RBG. Like I just <laughs> nothing. I, I don't want anything to happen to either one of those people. That's such a right? great idea. <laughs> yeah, just bubble wrap them. <laughs> but but what happened? I mean, what happens if RBG if she resigns or or and then Clarence Thomas resigns between now and then, the shape of the judiciary? What does that look like? I mean, Donald Trump's imprint on this country will last forever. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go there because you know I just uh, am hoping and praying uh, that uh, you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg just hangs on uh, and keeps doing the great work she's doing. But look, he's already influenced the judiciary. I think more than 200 uh, district and and appeals court positions have been filled. Um, And you know what? That's that's something that people need to focus on when they vote for president, because the Supreme Court is at stake. Right. Why don't why don't Democrat? Why don't we talk about these issues? I know Brian does. I know Brian. This is like Brian Fallon's going to going to listen to this (laughs) and he's going to call us. He's going to call Nick. He's going to call you. He's going to be like, this is my baby. I dream about this. I get that. But but why 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 do Democrats not talk about this issue and make it an effective political issue? I, I am praying and hoping that Joe Biden releases a list of of candidates that he would choose mm-hmm. from Kentonji mm-hmm. Brown Jackson, the federal mm-hmm. district court judge, to Danielle Holly Walker, the dean of the law school in, in at Howard, or Stacey Abrams' sister, who's a federal court judge in Georgia. What can Democrats do to embrace this issue of the federal judiciary? Because it's literally changing the landscape of our country, and we're not well, caring. You're you're doing uh, a lot right now just by talking about it and trying to get your listeners to pay attention. You know, I talked about it in 2016. You could never break through. Um, you know, there, people had a lot of other things on their minds. They're worried about health care and jobs, climate change, whatever the issue might be. But the judiciary, as we've seen with Trump, can be manipulated. Yes. He has nominated and Mitch McConnell has uh, gotten through the Senate people who are totally unqualified to be a federal judge. I mean, forget their particular point of view, which is equally troubling, but they never had tried a case. They had never filed a motion. They had never been in a courtroom. And they didn't even know basic things when they were questioned by the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. It didn't matter. You know, Trump sent them, we're going to put them through and and try to, you know, really tilt the court so far right uh, for the foreseeable future. So all we can do now is make sure that uh, Vice President Biden, when he becomes president, moves quickly to fill every single vacancy that is left and do everything we can to prevent Mitch McConnell from filling any more. I'm with you from your mouth to to God's ears. (laughs) And to the electorate. To the electorate. (laughs) I am somebody who's been, this is my issue, uh, African-American female mortality and judges are my two top priorities. You know, people take their issues to the black folk. As you know, we always, we take our issues like everybody else to the voting booth. And those are my number one and two issues that I'm taking with me. Let me ask you another question just about something you talked about in the campaign a lot and people just didn't give you credit for or shied away from it or distorted it. But you talked extensively about systemic racism in your campaign. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The irony, though, is that it took time for a lot of our white Democrats to come around even to the things that you were saying about systemic racism. Are you surprised by how quickly the winds have shifted around issues like reparations and Black Lives Matter? Well, I think the horrific video of George Floyd being murdered. And what, what was your reaction when you saw that? It, it, you know, it literally made me sick. It made me angry and sick and outraged. And I think for people who had never paid attention to these issues or somehow thought that they weren't you know, their issues, or there wasn't really much that could be done about it, that broke through uh, in an emotional, visceral way. And that's what was needed. You know, all of the, I mean, all the people that I uh, lifted up, the mothers of the movement and others, you know, it didn't have the impact of those eight minutes and 46 seconds of watching that police officer intentionally kill a fellow human being. So I'm hoping that that moment of moral reckoning that nobody could turn away from will finally lead to the changes that uh, many of us believe are necessary. I'm encouraged by the House bill that uh, was passed, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It has a lot of great reforms. And not only did every Democrat, every Democrat vote for it, but three Republicans did too. Now, sadly, it goes to the Senate where Mitch McConnell could care less and will, you know, keep it off the agenda. And that's why it'll have to be brought up again uh, when we win the Senate and we increase our numbers in the House and we have a Democratic president. And a lot of state legislatures, including, you know, in, in my state of New York, uh, have taken action that has just been compelled by what people could not turn away from. Back in 2015, and um, you met with some Black Lives Matter activists. I remember this, and you made this quote that stuck with me. Uh, Kaya is going to play the quote uh, when the show airs, but you said, I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws. You change allocation of resources. You change the way systems operate. You're not going to change every heart. You're not. But at the end of the day, we could do a whole lot to change some hearts and change some systems and create more opportunities for people who deserve to have them to live up to their own God-given potential. Do you believe that what we're seeing across the country right now is a change of heart or at least public opinion around Black Lives Matter? And the irony is that you're starting to finally see five years later after you stated that in 2015, what you said come to fruition, that people are organizing that we're legislating, that we're trying to change policy? Well, I, I think it illustrates what I said, what I meant um, back in that conversation. I am gratified that some people's hearts are being changed, but I am really encouraged that some laws and regulations and systems are being changed. <laughs> Correct. I'm hearts tired. come Listen, and go. <laughs> let's, we can for me personally, I want to stop making the makers of uh, yellow paint rich. That's fine. Painting <laughs> Black Lives Matter on streets is dope. I get it. But let's change some systems and let's change some yeah. legislation. Amen. And, you know, I think this is the moment. But that's why I've been telling a lot of young people with whom I've spoken virtually in the last weeks that I'm all for peaceful protest. And I think the protest has been powerful. It has been compelling. It has put pressure on, you know, elected officials from Washington to the local level. I'm all for it. But it has to be protest and vote. 
you know, protest alone can raise the issue, can illustrate it, can make it a stark choice. But if we don't have leaders who are going to listen and respond and do the hard work of changing those systems, we're going to be back here in two years, three years, five years, however many years from now. And I, I do not want that to be the case. You're I want us to force those changes. And, you know, I think a lot of the work that went into the Justice and Policing Act that the House passed is really smart work. And it's the kind of work that can only come because, you know, people got together. Karen Bass, the you know, head yeah. of the Congressional Black Caucus, led the effort to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And she is a master legislator. She was yeah. the speaker of the California House. This this woman knows how to get legislation done. So when the time came, she was ready and she was able to push it through. And as I said, it got three Republican votes. I mean, you you got a justice and policing bill through the House that was bipartisan. That would have never happened before George Floyd. So I expect you're going to be in Kentucky a lot, uh, virtually at least, over the next uh, <laughs> virtually, <laughs> virtually for the next uh, <laughs> next few months to get some things done. Oh, let's Let hope. Me, you, I mean, before we get to Joe Biden, I, I do have to ask just one question about as someone who's been and still is the target of white ring right wing media smears for decades since you were first lady in Arkansas. What's your advice for the next generation of women like AOC or Ayanna Presley? who seem to be the focus of those smears today. What would you tell those ladies? Well, look, I, th I think they're doing fine. I mean, they are out there. They're advocating their positions, whether you agree with them or not. They are certainly not cowed or intimidated by the opposition from the Republicans or the far right uh, wing that is always trying to set anybody who is uh, outspoken, particularly if you're a woman on the progressive side of the legislative uh, agenda back. So I, I think they're doing fine. I think it does wear on you. I mean, the the level of vitriol that has been unleashed online is, you know, painful for, for many people. And you have to grow a thick skin. If you're going to be in the public arena, man or woman, but particularly for women, you just have to be prepared to uh, fight for what you believe in. And you know, look, if, if people are still electing you, the people who yeah. know you best and and care about what you stand for, you know, it's going to be OK. Don't give in and don't give up and, and don't be knocked uh, down by that kind of, you know, really unfair and mean spirited uh, attacks. So my final questions for you today are the polls look good. I don't mean to invoke any pain for me. I mean, <laughs> let alone let alone you. But the polls look good for Joe Biden today. Better than I mean, he's he's polling better than any candidate this far out from November. When you see the polling, how do you process it? And uh, how would you suggest to people listening, not necessarily Joe Biden, but people listening, uh, how do they interpret polls this far out? Look, if the election were held next Tuesday, which I wish it would be, um, uh, Joe would win. And I'd be a lot uh, more relieved than I am waiting until November. But here's what the Republicans are going to try to do. And voters need to be really aware of this. Number one, they're going to try to suppress the vote. They're going to try to make it hard for you to vote. They're going to try to you know, make those lines stretch for hours. They're going to try to make vote by mail difficult. Anything they can do to try to 
undermine the fairness of the election is absolutely their agenda. It's what Stacey Abrams contended with and what she's fighting against with her fair fight. It's what I'm you know, doing with my Onward Together group, uh, working with Democracy Docket to bring lawsuits to force states to run fair elections. So you got to expect the Republicans to do that. Another thing they're going to do is they're going to flood polling places with, quote, poll watchers yep. uh, who are you know, going to be very intimidating uh, to uh, voters who show up. And we're going to have to stand up to that. And the other thing we need, and I hope a lot of your listeners will consider this, is we need poll watchers ourselves, both running the elections and helping to, you know, fend off the uh, intimidation that's going to come from the other side. We're also going to see, as we already are seeing, a flood of misinformation and disinformation oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, online about Joe, about other I mean, Democrats. Mar- I, I wish I wish know? Mark would get it under control, but Facebook has been the epicenter of this type of. I mean, we just gotta, we have to be responsible with our platforms. What's your advice to Joe Biden about picking a VP? I, I, I you don't know this, you don't know <laughs> this, but Tom Perez and I spoke often before he went to your house for his interview. I was somebody uh, that I that that he spoke with and I, I believe the final three were Vilsack Perez and Kane am I, if I'm not mistaken and you chose a, <laughs> a awesome individual which I mean how it's a personal process. It, it it's so personal uh Bakari and, and I, what I tell anybody who asks is number 1 can this person be president? And you know that's a big question and you've got to answer it resoundingly yes that person can be president. Number two, do I want to work with this person? Yeah, there's do some you like them? I think, yeah, do you like them? You want to see them for lunch? You want to, you know, be in the Oval Office uh, every day with them? Because there are some people who could be good presidents, but, you know, maybe not so compatible. And so you got you to gotta feel that this person would be a good partner. And then thirdly, can this person help you win? Uh, or at least do no harm? But don't you, know, don't you we, think this president— got to win vice the Electoral pres- College, this you know? vice president, doesn't this vice president who he chooses— have more effect than any vice president in recent history? I think it could. And and here's what I fear. And and the person who Joe picks has to be really ready. You know, Trump has tried every attack on Biden. And so far, they're not sticking because, you know, there's no there there. And people learned their lesson in 2016. And the press learned their lesson, right? Yes. So whoever the vice president pick is, that person is going to be the target of the most unfair venal attacks from the Republicans and their allies. And so we got to be ready to rally around whoever they, uh, you know, whoever Joe well, picks. I, I am and prepared to rally. Person. I am prepared to rally around Kamala Harris whenever he announces her. <laughs> 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 that, I don't know. I, I am shouting that to the rafters. I, I want my, I want my daughter to be able to, and I know that you and, and Kamala are friends, but we are, and, and we as are. you are with Karen Bass and Marsha Fudge and, uh, and Tammy Duckworth, et cetera. But I don't know. I just I, I just feel that she would be a special VP. I feel more special about the fact that I can call Hillary Clinton a friend. And so thank you so much for coming oh, on and hanging out with me for you. a little while. Thank you, my friend. And you guys stay safe and healthy and just enjoy those kids, okay? And please felt, tell 42 I said hello as well. We, uh, we love him. And uh, I speak to Frank Scott about the politics of Little Rock often. <laughs> and he's always like, man, I'm just trying to make Bill and Hillary proud. So oh, He's great. <laughs> I love Frank. He's doing a terrific job under really difficult circumstances. <laughs> under really difficult circumstances. Well, <laughs> thank right. you and have fun and kiss those grandbabies. I'll do it. You take care, Bakari. Right. Lots of love. <laughs> 